Well, good morning. For those uh, who haven't met me yet, or I've had, for those whom I have not had the privilege of meeting, my name is Clint Estes. I'm the assistant pastor of Discipleship Ministries here at New Life Dresher, where we exist to know Jesus and to make him known. And I do want to thank you, uh, especially for welcoming me and my wife and my kids here so warmly. We have we just felt immediately brought into the family and loved and welcomed, and I just want to thank you for that. If you are the new one here, uh, there are a couple of ways you can get to know us better. You can text this number up on the screen. You can download the New Life app uh, online. You should have received one of these on the way in, a little half sheet with a QR code on the back. Um, scan that. We would love to get to know you better, so I encourage you to fill those out. Many of you are sitting in these seats feeling deep pain about what is going on around the world. Many of you are up at night with your stomach in knots and feeling sick about uh, Ukraine and the world. Maybe you're sitting in these seats, though, and you that Ukraine's a world away. It's hard to picture everything that's going on there, but you feel hurt from the world in a different way. Maybe you were betrayed by someone who was a close friend of yours, or you were mistreated by a coach or a friend's parent when you were younger. The chapter we're going to be looking at this morning is written to a people who have had enemies come in, burn their homes down, take everything away from them, kill loved ones, and ship them off to a foreign country where they lived in exile. And it's written to encourage them, It's written to teach them. It's written to point their eyes to a different kingdom and tell them how to live rightly where they are. We're going to be in the book of Daniel, continuing our series. We're going to be in the chapter chapter 5 this morning. So if you turn there in your Bibles, you'll be helped by being able to revisit it throughout the sermon, or you can be looking online, uh, not online, at the uh, projector here. Again, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had brought out of the temple in Jerusalem to be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen queen declared, O king, live forever. 
Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for another, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys." He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house you have brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent. And this is the writing, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, that's the singular of Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord in heaven, 
we will not understand this rightly and apply it rightly without the help of your spirit. So I'm asking for you to work in our hearts. I'm asking for you to show us Jesus Christ and exalt him from this. And I'm asking that your word would be like rain which comes down from the skies, waters the earth, and that it would produce fruit in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what a story. Let's review it and make sure we've got it straight in our minds before we do anything else, okay? We read that this man Belshazzar held a feast. We don't know anything about Belshazzar. He's only listed in the book of Daniel in the Bible. We've got no background on him. He's got no history. He comes out of nowhere. All we know is that he's a ruler of Babylon and that he throws killer parties. You can just picture the room, can't you? It's not hard. The live band's playing. The disco ball's down and spinning. There's a buzz about the room, and champagne corks are, are flying. People are swirling their cocktails and muttering to one another and having a good time. People are enjoying life. And in the middle of all of that, Belshazzar commands to bring out vessels. Vessels. They keep showing up in this passage. They've got to be important. What's going on with them? You might remember back in chapter 1 of the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had gone to Jerusalem, had sacked the city, and we read that Nebuchadnezzar not just took exiles, but he took vessels from God's temple in Jerusalem, and he carried them off and placed them in the treasury of his God. What's important about them is that these are the Lord's vessels. They're vessels that have taken the same journey as the Lord's people. The cups, per se, aren't important. What's important is what they symbolize, and they symbolize God's people. The book of Daniel is the story of God's vessels that have been shipped off into exile and mistreated there. And the question of the book of Daniel is, what is God going to do about it? Will he do anything about it? Is he strong enough to take care of it? Well, we read that Belshazzar takes the vessels, he drinks wine from them, and feeling good, he praises the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. It's ironic, isn't it? He's holding in his hand a gold cup, swirling wine in it, a cup that was manipulated by man, that was molded by man, and then he goes off and he worships gods of gold that he's holding in his own hand. There's a more sinister irony here, too. Does that list of materials, gold, silver, iron, bronze, stone, sound familiar to you from anywhere else in the book of Daniel? It recalls to mind the statue of of Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 2, doesn't it? A statue made of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Ooh, Belshazzar, you should know better. You're worshiping gods that are one day going to be shattered and brought to an end. Well, we come to... One of the more famous parts of this chapter, the handwriting, the shocking event. In the flicker of the light, amidst all the buzz and the bustle of the room, a hand appears and begins to write letters on the white plaster wall. How would you react? Well, we know how Belshazzar reacts. The color drains from his face. Alarm bells are clanging in the back of his mind. His arms and his legs lose their strength. And we read this phrase, his knees knocked together, which is a curious phrase there. It either means his, his knees just gave out and he collapsed, or at least one Old Testament scholar thinks he wet his pants. He was terrified at what went on. He knows whatever this means, it can't be good. 
So what happens next is all too familiar to us as we've been going through the book of Daniel. He calls the enchanters, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and he's trying to get the top scientists in there. He wants the Ivy League grads. He's trying to get the Navy SEALs of literary interpretation to tell him what on earth this means. And while Nebuchadnezzar, his father, preferred the stick, tell me what this means or I'm going to rip your arms off, Belshazzar prefers the carrot. If you tell me what this means, I will clothe you with gold and purple. You'll be the third ruler in the kingdom. Please, anything, tell me what this means. Well, they're stumped. They can't. Just like every other time. Well, hearing the chaos down the hall, the queen, that's likely the queen mother, since we read that Belshazzar's wives were in the room with him, right? Hearing the chaos down the hall, the queen comes in, And she counsels Belshazzar to get a man named Daniel. Did you notice how she describes Daniel in in verse 11? She says, There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And of course, we know that in Daniel's case, it's not the spirit of the holy gods in him, but rather it's God the Holy Spirit in him. Over and over in the book of Daniel, we've seen that even the best, sharpest, human minds, on their own, cannot understand the things of God. And brothers and sisters, we too have received words written by the finger of God, our Bibles. And we need the Holy Spirit in us, if we're ever going to read it rightly, to see Jesus in it, and to apply it to our lives as we ought to. It's as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he said, So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things written, freely given us by God. So, we read that Daniel appears. He skips all the court formalities. He says, keep your money. Don't you love that? And then he goes on to interpret the writing. But first, he gives... Belshazzar a history lesson, and he recounts the story of Nebuchadnezzar from chapter 4 that Dave preached on last week. And he recounts Nebuchadnezzar's great glory. Just think how great, humanly speaking, Nebuchadnezzar was. He conquered enemies, he plundered foreign cities, he brought back gold, he shipped off exiles, he built up this amazing uh, empire, the greatest empire in the world at the time. He did the hanging gardens, and Daniel recognizes he was great in human eyes. All peoples feared him. He wanted to kill somebody, they're dead. He wanted somebody to be raised up, he would raise them up. God gave him greatness and a kingdom and glory and majesty. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar was proud. His heart was lifted up against the Lord, and he did not recognize the Lord who gave him all those things. And therefore, God humbled him and brought him low, gave him the mind of a beast, and made him eat grass, and his fingernails grew out like the talons of an eagle. And if that happened to Nebuchadnezzar, brings to mind, how much more would that happen, that humbling, happen to Belshazzar, who wasn't so great, earthly speaking, as far as we know in comparison to Nebuchadnezzar, his father, but instead all we know about Belshazzar is that he throws parties, and that, with wine glasses, he didn't even plunder himself. Here's the dagger. Daniel said, You, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew this. And instead, you've worshipped gods of gold and silver, and you've lifted your heart against the king of heaven. 
Belshazzar knew Nebuchadnezzar's story. Certainly he would have read and known of the proclamation that, that Nebuchadnezzar sent out to the world, right, at the beginning of the last chapter, how he was proud and humbled. He should have learned his lesson, and he didn't. His wickedness, therefore, is greater than Nebuchadnezzar's. And as we'll see, his judgment, therefore, is greater as well. Well, we come to the interpretation. Mene, many tekel, and parson. You have to remember that words written during this time and place that were written down weren't written with vowels as we have them. All that would be written down was the consonants. So you might see, for example, this. And the question is, what does it say? Does it say hat? Or does it say hit? Or hot? Or whatever it is. It could go either way if all you're looking at are the consonants. Well, if you look at these words that were written out, and you put one set of vowels in there, they would be nouns. And they would read as units of weight decreasing in size. Mina, mina, which is a unit of weight. Shekel, which is a 60th of a mina, much smaller and half shekel. It'd be like saying $1,000, $1,000, 20 bucks, and a tenner. That's a theme that we've seen in Daniel. Just like the statue in chapter 2 is decreasing in the value of its gold and metal, so too here we see that the kingdoms of this world are decreasing in glory. They're not getting better. They're getting worse. But if you change the vowels and put different vowels in there, they read not as nouns of weight, but they read as verbs. And they read numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. And this is how Daniel reads it for Belshazzar. And this is what he says it means. Many, many, numbered, numbered. Belshazzar, God has numbered the days of your kingdom, and it's getting really low. And he's brought it to an end. Weighed. Belshazzar, God has weighed you and your kingdom in the balances, and you're found wanting. You have fallen short of what is required of you. And divided. Belshazzar, your kingdom is going to be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And the outcome is, as promised, Belshazzar receives a chain of gold, a purple robe, and he's made the third ruler in the kingdom, which is interesting. Belshazzar had just been told that his kingdom was about to be brought to an end, that he's been found wanting and proud before the Lord God Almighty. And do we read of him repenting? Do we read of him praising the Lord and humbling himself? No. Instead, he clothes Daniel with glory and makes him the third ruler of a kingdom as if he would have a kingdom to rule over the next morning. Sin is blinding and it's arrogant. It will make so that we don't think properly. That's how it is. It's as though, it's like what uh, Paul describes sin in Romans chapter 2. Mankind, in our sin, they are futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They became fools. That's what sin does to us. Well, read then of the fulfillment of Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in chapter 2. Of the statue being shattered and brought to an end. Babylon falls, just as God promised. And so it ends with that very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. That's the story. What do we take from it? 
What is this meant to teach us? What can we learn? What are some applications for exiles? I'd like to give four of them. First, what do we take from this? Some sins are especially brazen. Here is one of, here's the ruler of one of the most wicked nations in the history of the world. Who knows what sort of atrocities he's committed? Who knows what gold and fields he's taken for himself just because he can and he wants them? Who knows what women he's ripped from families just because he wants them? And yet, there's one thing that God singles out for us in his word, and that is blasphemy. Despite the warning of Nebuchadnezzar and the story of what happened to him, Belshazzar continued in rebelling against God, and he violated God's holy things, and he poked his finger in God's eye. And I wonder, does that describe any one of us here this morning? Has God been tapping you on the shoulder? Has God been calling you to humble yourself before him? We who sit week after week in church and we hear of God's greatness and his glory and we read of his love and his mercy and yet we who then stiffen our necks against him after hearing that again and again, we are more guilty than Belshazzar. We've heard not only Nebuchadnezzar's story, we've heard Belshazzar's story as well. We should know better. And as Proverbs 29 says, He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. That's what happened to Belshazzar. Some sins are especially brazen. Another thing we learn is that God holds everyone in his hand, even the most powerful and most ungodly. Do you remember when Daniel was rebuking Belshazzar, uh, what he said in verse 23? He said, Belshazzar, you've done all these things. You worship gods. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. God gives people the breath they need in order to blaspheme him. God gives people the strength in their arm muscles they need to shake their fist at him. There is nothing that even the most powerful or wicked man on the planet can do without God allowing him to do it. And one day he will call all men to account before him. Thirdly, don't set your heart on the glitter of Babylon because it won't last. Don't set your heart on the glitter of Babylon because it won't last. The devil uses any number of tactics to try to make us forsake the Lord. He might try to pound us with persecution to make so that we'll forsake Christ, anything to save our lives or whatever. But one tactic that he uses, maybe especially in the West, is he will try to woo and seduce us with earthly pleasures to make us fall in love with this present world and forsake and forget God and our home in heaven. Parties are not bad. Parties are not bad. My wife throws great parties. It's why I married her. But 
All around us, the world invites us to a feast with glitz and with glam that is intended to take our eyes off of our home in heaven, off of our God who gives us these good gifts, and instead to focus them here on earth and make this world and everything in it all that we love, all that we cherish, all that we hold on to and pursue in life. So the question is, what does that for you? What catches your eye? What pulls at your heartstring? What makes you say, I need that or I won't be happy? If this is taken from me, I will not be happy. And the obvious action item is, don't give in. Don't give in because the kingdoms of this world and the feasts that they offer are not going to last forever. Uh, in, in the Bible... Uh, God's Word talks about Babylon as more than just a kingdom that existed thousands of years ago. The Bible talks about Babylon, too, in a much broader way. It depicts um, a world, the world, that doesn't worship Christ. That's Babylon. We all live in Babylon. And in Revelation chapter 18, it describes the final judgment when Jesus Christ is going to come back and return to earth and judge all the world before him. And do you know how it describes it? It describes it as the fall of Babylon. Look at Revelation chapter 18. Again, describing the final judgment. We read that an angel called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And those who lived in worldly luxury, lapping it all up, we read on that day, say, Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with Jews and with jewels and with pearls. Does that sound familiar to you? Like Belshazzar's feast, perhaps. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Brothers and sisters, all the pleasures of this world, whether that's the weekend at the golf course, whether that's the latest designer bag that you want, whether it's a video game that you can't wait to get your hands on, or your dream house, or your dream car, the list goes on. All of it, one day, will be burned up. We won't take it with us. And just as Belshazzar was killed that very night, and his kingdom was sacked suddenly, so too Jesus will return and will judge the world suddenly. This is what he said about his own return. Jesus said, Matthew 24, But concerning that day and hour when he will return to judge the world, no one knows. For as in the days of Noah, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, sound familiar? Marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware, until the flood came and swept them all away, so too will be the coming of the Son of Man. So if you're in this room, and you're snacking on the world's pleasures, Not that the world's pleasures are all bad. God gives us so many good gifts to enjoy. But if you are feasting on the world in such a way that you find yourself loving the things of this world more than you love the Lord your God, or if you're in this room and you are proud in your heart and you are not honoring God as your Lord, 
you're running from him, you're spitting in his face. Or if you're in this room and you're unwilling to learn from the testimony of the Bible, the stories we have about our need to bow the Lord and hum, bow before the Lord and humble ourselves before him, you need to know that one day all of us will stand before the court of God. All of our days are numbered. And that one day, we will be weighed in the balances and found wanting. And that we will then be divided, sheep from goats, and judged. What do we do with that? God gives us very good news in his word. God, in his great mercy, has made way for proud and partying rebels like you and like me to be brought into his kingdom and welcomed into his family. And the way he did it was to number the days of his own son, to weigh him in the balances, and to judge him. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was the only one who ever lived a perfect life. Do you set your heart on the things of this world? Jesus Christ set his heart in heaven. Do you find yourself lifting up your heart and being proud, not giving thanks to God and honoring him? Oh, Jesus Christ's heart was humble. He loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. It was his food to do the will of his Father in heaven. He was the only one who would ever be weighed in the balances and found perfectly righteous before his Father. And yet, God the Father sent Jesus Christ down on the cross. The strength of the arms of the soldiers hammering in the nails were given to them by God the Father. The breath of those who mocked Jesus Christ on the cross were given to them by God the Father, given so that they could kill his perfect son, so that God could give you life. On the cross, Jesus suffered the wrath of God against sinners in our place so that all who trust on him alone for salvation on that great day of judgment will be given the perfection of Jesus Christ, will be found before God to be spotless, to be found not wanting, to be saved. That is a king worth serving. So Christian, I want to remind you this morning, Remember and look afresh with wonder and love at the great mercy of God to you. And love him because of it. And if you're in this room and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you need to know, too, the mercy of God, not just the judgment. He offers you this morning mercy in Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Rest upon him alone And on that day, you will receive the smile of the Father. You will be saved. Well, lastly then, the very last point. This will be quick. Especially in light of that. Follow Jesus in lowliness, and you will feast with him in glory. In contrast to the sparkling sequin of this world, Jesus Christ lived humbly, 
We read that he wasn't outwardly attractive in any special way. He, he had no beauty that we should desire him from Isaiah. We read that he had nowhere to lay his head. Think of that. The king of heaven and earth, angels, were tripping over each other to do his bidding. He invented gold. He planted every diamond there is in the world. And yet when he came, he came and left the riches of heaven to be He came as a humble, lowly servant. And he said to his followers, take up your cross and follow me. Brothers and sisters, the rooms in heaven and the crown of glory, they'll come in due time. But right now, we have the privilege, and God has called us to walk in humility to share in the sufferings of our Savior Jesus Christ, to put our flesh to death, to be content with little as he was. And the great thing is that in the book of Revelation, after we read of the fall of Babylon, Jesus' return and the judgment of the world, it doesn't end there. What comes next is another feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Christian, you're suffering in this life the need to walk in lowliness in this life, the fight in your own heart against pride against the Lord and and the fight in your own heart against lust after the things of this world, everything that comes with being in exile, it'll all one day come to an end. We'll sit with our Savior, we'll feast with our King, and we'll give praises to God with unadulterated hearts for everything that he has done for us. And unlike Belshazzar's kingdom, Jesus' reign will last forever. And unlike Belshazzar's party, this feast will never end. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, what do we say in response to this? We thank you for what you've done to save us. We thank you for the great love you have for us. We thank you so much that, Jesus, you became humbled in order that you would raise us up with you. And we ask that you would humble our hearts, that you would give us the hope of heaven, that that would be something that we feed our souls upon, Jesus Christ and what he's done and the hope he provides for us, so that we can have the strength to endure. We pray that in the meantime, as we wait for that wonderful day when we will be with you forever, we pray that you would give us strength to endure against the the temptations and the fights of the devil. We pray that you would give us a love for God and for the kingdom of heaven that is greater than our love for our own comfort and for the things that this world has to offer us. And we pray that as we go through our lives, they would be a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving for what you've done. We pray this in our Savior's great name. Amen.